Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. So what is this world coming to? I mean, when you look at how everything is going, you know it's moving towards something. And I would tell you the world is coming to Jesus. Uh, when uh, Paul wrote in Romans 14 and 11, there it is, Romans 14 11, he said one day, he's quoting Jesus, he said one day every knee shall uh, bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So one of these days, this entire world is going to have to kneel before God and acknowledge who he is. So that's why I say ultimately, the world is in fact uh, coming to Jesus. And what we've been doing is trying to hit some highlights of the end of times and uh, look at it from kind of a 30,000 foot view. We have opportunities for you if you wanna go a little deeper in your study, there should be some uh, materials available in the bulletin that you could go online and avail yourself of that if you really wanna do a deeper dive. But we're just doing kind of the overall, the overarching view of the things that the Bible says are going to happen at the end of time. Last week we talked about the rapture of the church, which in my view is probably the next event on that calendar of eternity. It'll be followed as we'll talk this morning about a period of great tribulation on the earth, seven years of great tribulation. That will be followed by the second coming of Jesus, and then that will be followed by him establishing a thousand year reign on the earth, a new heaven and a new earth. And then eternity is just beginning. We'll have access to heaven and we'll have the uh, 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 opportunity to still live here on earth. So it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that God is going to do at the end of all things. Last week again, we talked about the rapture of the church. Now what is that? Just to recap for you, it is when God comes one day to draw all of his kids home. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse 16. One day, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and those who have died in Christ will be raised first. Then we which are alive, if we are alive at that time, we will be caught up, that's where you get the word rapture, it means to be caught up, we'll be caught up together with those who are, uh, who are just been resurrected, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We talked last week about our loved ones that have gone to heaven, how their spirit and souls are at home with God, how their body sleeps in the earth. And one day God will recreate, resurrect that body, reunite that body with the spirit and soul that are at home with God. And we'll be caught up, raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, that's the next event. It is the rapture of the church. And one day that will, in fact, happen. And at the time of rapture, what's going to occur here on the earth is a period of time known as great tribulation. In essence, what the world is going to get is what they say they wanted. Uh, the world says we don't want God. We don't want a God to tell us right and wrong. We don't want a God to tell us what we can and cannot do. We don't want a God to restrain us, uh, to guide us. We want to be left alone. We want to be on our own. In fact, that spirit is seen. David wrote about it in the second Psalm. He said, why do nations rage and the people plot this empty thinking? 
The kings of the earth set themselves. Rulers take counsel against the Lord. Note now, against the Lord and against his leaders saying, let's break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Uh, that prophetically was saying they see God as a puppet master who has strings and cords and controls every event of life. And they say, we don't want that. We don't want a God to govern us. We don't want any God over us. And so when you talk of great tribulation, in essence, all it is, is God is finally giving the world what they've said they wanted. <laughs> they don't want him. He says, okay, here's what that's gonna look like in a world without God. And so we're gonna look at those elements that happen. As soon as the rapture takes place, the elements that happen right after the rapture. In fact, Revelation 6, verse 15, the Bible describes, and we'll read this together, this period of time, this seven-year period known as Great Tribulation. During this time, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich and the rulers, the commanders, the mighty, every slave and free, hide themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the, note, wrath of the Lamb. For this great day of God's wrath has finally come, and who is able to stand? Now this prophetically talks about that event of great tribulation when judgment will be unleashed on this earth, and judgment is basically God giving to man what man says he's always wanted, a world without restraint, a world without God. What happens at the rapture, this is an important thing to note, what happens at the rapture is the restraining power of the Spirit of God is removed. Right now, uh, evil is kept in check. Right now, there are uh, people who would do far worse than they're able to do if you did not have some restraint of God's power on the earth. It's in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that when this period of great tribulation occurs, one of the things that will happen is that restraint will be gone. Uh, think about the description that Jesus gave of his church, of those of us who know him. He says, you are salt and you are light. You are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Now, think about what salt does. Salt uh, is a purifier. It, it keeps meat from spoiling. They'll salt the meat. And so he's saying one of the things that's keeping humanity from spoiling is their salt. There's a, a moral compass. There's a sense of right or wrong that people have within their heart. And those of us who have Christ, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that restrains us and sometimes even releases us. We know what to say or what not to say. We know what to do, what not to do, who to help, who to stay away from. And he's saying you're salt. And then he says you're light. Just as salt purifies, light illuminates and so you can bring light into a situation. But think about a world where those elements are no longer there, spiritually speaking, where you no longer have the restraint of God's spirit. You no longer have salt and light in communities, no churches, all of that has been withdrawn. And what you have then is a world in chaos. You have a world completely out of control, no moral restraints and nothing to guide them or guard them even from themselves. And so the Bible is describing that period of time here as great tribulation. And the first thing I would tell you about this period of time, if you're taking notes with me this morning, I would say that his coming in that time is vengeful. He's coming vengefully. God is coming in this period of time known as great tribulation. That's why the verse we read just a moment ago, it describes the wrath of the Lamb 
And then the last uh, verse of verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come. Now, that's a heavy thought because what we talk about a lot in our church is the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God. And we'll continue to talk about that because that's true. We're in a period of time, we're in an era where we're trying to reach as many people as we can who do not yet know Jesus. When you begin to study the book of Revelation and you begin to see how all things are laid out, you and I find ourselves in a period of time known as the church age. Revelation one to three, you have all those seven churches that are mentioned there. Those were literal churches. And in those literal churches are problems that each church had, that every church has, because they're made up of imperfect people. But the role of those churches, just as the role of this church, is to try to help people, love people, show the mercy and the grace of God. We're trying to reach people and we're trying to see people give their hearts to Christ. We're in the church age. We're in that day and time of God's mercy and of his grace. But just as he is a savior, the Bible says there's also an aspect of God that you have to come to terms with, and that is he is also a judge. Just as God saves from sin, God one day ultimately will judge sin. Now here's why we're safe from that. The Bible talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, you and I who know Jesus, we're saved from the wrath to come. We're not gonna go through this period of great tribulation. You know why? Because we accepted his payment for our sin at the cross. See, sins, our sins were judged, but they were judged at the cross. And so what Jesus did at the cross is he picked up the tab. He paid the bill. We came before him saying, God, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None righteous, no, not one. <laughs> None who does good, we're all sinners. We all got it coming, as Clint Eastwood said. You know, we, we, we're, we're all sinful, right? So we come before God acknowledging we're sinful. We can't save ourselves. And God says, will you accept Jesus' payment for your sin at the cross? And we go, yes, sir. And we come and we say, Lord, I humbly receive your payment for my sin. And so in that exchange, I put my sin against the cross and he takes his forgiveness and righteousness and puts that on me. So I'm forgiven, you're forgiven. Our sins were judged, but they were judged at the cross. So that judgment will never happen again. Remember I gave you the metaphor of those prairie fires and how sometimes in order to stop a prairie fire, those fire departments will get out in front of it and create a fire break. Literally, they'll burn off large sections of, of land so that when the fire reaches that, there's no more fuel and they can control the fire and extinguish the fire. Well, the principle is the fire will not return where the fire has already been. And if you think of God's judgment as fire, the fires of judgment fell at the cross. And so when I receive Jesus as savior, that fire will not fall where that fire has already been. So I'm not gonna have to worry about that. My sins past, present, and future are covered at the cross. Now that doesn't mean I get a get out of jail free card. That doesn't mean that I don't mess up and God doesn't deal with me. But what it does mean is my soul is not in jeopardy. That part of me that is eternal is not in jeopardy. Now that part of me that's physical and temporal, I'll deal with that. There's laws called the law of gravity. If I go up on top of the building and I jump, there's a law that I won't violate, gravity. And this brother's gonna hit the ground and probably break something. And I can tell you, it doesn't require divine intervention for me not to hit the ground. And conversely, it would require divine intervention for me not to hit the ground. 
What's my point? My point is, yeah, there's consequences. You know, you play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. So we all know how that works. So all that works out in our lives each and every day. That, that's just how that works. We, you know, do the crime, you go and do the time. So we, we get that. That has nothing to do with eternity. That has everything to do with time. So I have to confess my sin. I try to live a good life because I know, you know, if you're not careful, you can bring some bad stuff on your life by just how you live. But it doesn't affect my eternal destiny. That's what I don't need to miss. So God is a savior, but he's also a judge. And God the Father judged sin at the cross. Listen, it was the will of God for every human being to, to, to make themselves available to appropriate the righteousness of God at the cross on them. It was not the, and it is not the will of God for one person to ever have to go through this period of great tribulation. That's not his will. You say, how do you know that? Second Peter 3, 9. God is not willing What's the will of God? He's not willing that any should perish. Did you get that? Any, not many, any. But that all should come to repentance. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, everybody, that he gave his own. What else could he do? What else could God do to save humankind? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. So what I'm talking about, judgment of God, what I'm talking about, great tribulation, this was not the will of God for humanity to go through that experience. People choose to reject Jesus. They choose to say, I don't want any God over me, Psalm 2. I don't want God controlling my life. And the people that ultimately reject God, if you're, if you're around when the rapture takes place and you're here on this earth, will go through this period of time called great tribulation. Now we see God today, as John described in John 1, 29. Remember, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He's a Lamb, the Lamb of God. But when you see him coming back the second time to judge the world, the Bible refers to him now as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb is now a Lion. And just as loving and just as merciful and just as forgiving as he, he also cannot overlook sin. Look, God can't overlook sin and still be God. So you think about all the evil that happens in our world and all the evil that's ever happened in our world. He judged it at the cross. But listen, if people don't avail themselves and appropriate the forgiveness that's at the cross, then it's on them. And God will then judge the world by fire because he will judge sin. He comes as Savior but he at that point will be, he'll be a judge. In fact, let me give you some details of what will happen when this great period of tribulation commences. According to 1 John 2.18, there'll be a figure that will emerge as a world leader. The Bible refers to him there as antichrist, antichrist. You've probably heard of that. Um, anti, anti just means against. Anti is against. It's one that will be against Christ. And he will emerge as a world leader. Now think about our world today. We're already, honestly, kind of set up for a lot of these prophetic events. Uh, we're set up to have a world that could have a singular monetary system. Uh, we're set up to have a world that's uh, uh, leadership could be headquartered in Europe. We're set up that way. We are already set up to be in a world that could have one leader 
And that leader could lead the entire world. Think about if a person emerged right now and they had a, a, a plan to bring peace to the Ukraine. They had a plan to bring uh, uh, some help into the uh, countries in Africa that struggle. They, in other words, they had answers for all of the turmoil in the various parts of the world. As a political figure, you'd listen to them. You would say, makes sense, man. They've got some great ideas. I, I select that one. Or then they came on and said, I have some scientific ideas of ways to approach science to help some of these pandemics and some of these outbreaks, which, wow, that's genius. Let's listen to that guy. I've got some economic ideas. I've got some ways whereby we could help. And all this tension involving Israel, all these Arabs and their hostile countries around, I can guarantee you peace for Israel and all of their neighbors, where they can live in peace. And so this guy then is elected as leader of the world and uh, he, he, he signs a peace treaty with Israel guaranteeing their safety and all the neighbors are comfortable with that. I'm just saying, you see how we are set up even today to look to such a leader. And the Bible says when the church is raptured, when the restraint is gone, that this leader will emerge. And for the very first part of this time of tribulation, this leader will be loved and embraced and followed by the world. Into this period of time, God will still extend mercy. Even though the spirit of God is restrained and his church has been raptured, there will be 144,000 witnesses left in the earth. These are just like little evangelists going everywhere telling people about Jesus. Now, how do you come up with 144,000? How does the Bible uh, say? Well, it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you do the math, you get 144,000, and these are like evangelists. They're gonna go throughout the world, and they're gonna talk primarily, primarily to people who never had the opportunity to trust Jesus. And the Bible says with all this chaos that's going on in the world, the restraint of the Spirit gone, the church not present, that these people who never heard the truth about the mercy of God because of the pressure they're under and because of the turmoil that the world is going through, they'll receive Jesus by the millions. In fact, when one of the elders in Revelation saw them as they were entering into heaven at the end of the great tribulation period, they said, who are these and where do they come from? And they said, these are they who came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there will be a massive number of people during the time of great tribulation who will come to Christ even during the period of time where he's pouring out his wrath on a world that has largely rejected him. And believe it or not, as hard as those things are going to be during the time of great tribulation, still not everybody's gonna receive him. Even the people who have opportunity, many of them will say, no, I'll just deal with this on my own. I refuse to see that you are the Messiah. So there'll still be a multitude of people who still refuse to trust Jesus. When you study the first part of Revelation, about Revelation chapter seven, you see not only the story of these witnesses that will be in the earth, but you also hear about these judgments that will be released in the earth. He talks about seven seals and seven trumpets and seven vials. It's a metaphor, an imagery of these certain types of judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard of that one, right? Well, these will all be released during that period of time. God will be orchestrating those particular judgments on the earth. And it's interesting that there's seven, seven seals, seven vials, seven trumpets, 
even seven churches. Because there's something called biblical numerology. When you study the Bible, you understand that numbers uh, equate to something. Like the number seven. Uh, the number seven is a number of perfection. Um, so when you read the number seven, it always speaks of perfection or completion. So I could summarize these judgments that the Bible describes in Revelation as being perfect judgment. God is meeting out an appropriate, might be another word, an appropriate judgment for a world that has rejected him. Three and a half years into the seven-year period, this one called Antichrist, this leader of the world, will break his vow to Israel. This is significant. He'll realize during that period of time the multitudes of people that are embracing the Messiah and the hub, it seems, for this Christian faith is around uh, the little country of Israel and there'll be this mass migration toward that country of Israel. They're going for security. And so three and a half years into the seven years, uh, he breaks his commitment and he breaks his pledge to Israel and then he then turns the forces of the world against Israel. So there's great persecution and there's martyrdom that will take place in that last period of that great tribulation against those who were saved during that time, who followed Christ, and there'll be mass martyrdom of those people during the last period of great tribulation. The tribulation period will end when there is this marshalling of forces in a valley called the Valley of Megiddo. Um, if, you have, if you Google map, you'll find it called the Valley of Jezreel. But it's the same valley, the Valley of Megiddo. There have been many famous battles that have been fought throughout history in that battle, in that valley rather. It's where this famous battle you've all heard of called Armageddon. Well, what is happening is this Antichrist, this world leader, will bring all the armies of the world, he'll bring all that tension and all that warfare uh, into that valley, and they're going to basically annihilate Israel finally from the face of the earth. And that will be at the very end of this period of time called Great Tribulation. So the first, time, the first thing I'd have you to think of is his coming being vengeful. The second thing I would have you to think is his coming is visible. Now what will happen when these armies are amassing there in that valley is something incredible happens just before they're able to attack Israel. Before a shot is fired, something supernatural, something spectacular, something that captures the attention, listen, of the entire world. Now, there were times in history where people would read prophecies of every eye in the world seeing an event and think, how would that even happen, right? That's happened in my lifetime. There's been this technology called satellites where you can see in live time, real time, we can see events happening on the other side of the world in real time. So it's easy now to understand how there could be this incredible event that the eyes of the world would see it. Everybody has devices. Can you imagine getting an alert on your device, on your laptop, your phone, or if you're watching television and suddenly it's telling you, you need, you know, you need to see this, it's everywhere. And all of a sudden, there's something spectacular that's happening in the skies and in the heavens. And the Bible says uh, in Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming with clouds. And then listen to this, every eye will see him. Listen to Zechariah, the prophet, 14 verse four. And when they see him in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. What's significant about his coming in that day is when he comes, uh, he will, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. 
Now, the difference is, in the rapture, his feet didn't touch the earth. We were caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He got into the clouds, he didn't come to the ground. That's significant. In that coming, we covered it last week, the world, the eyes of the world didn't see him. It happened, as Paul described, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, remember we talked about how quick the twinkling of an eye is, about one one-hundredth of a second. Uh, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to think. And, and, and remember the analogy, two will be working in the field, one's taken, the other's left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one is taken and the other is left. So what happens at the rapture is it's instantaneous. One person suddenly is gone and the other person is left behind and you're wondering, what just happened here? But at the second coming of Jesus, the end of the great tribulation period, the eyes of the world see him and the Bible says his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. So now he's landed, he's touched the ground, he's at the Mount of Olives. Now, what's interesting in that part of the world is separating the Mount of Olives from the ancient city of Jerusalem is the Valley Kidron. And when you cross the Valley of Kidron, and I've been there, you have the Eastern Gate, and to this day the Eastern Gate is completely closed. You can access the ancient city into the Temple Mount by various gates, but not the Eastern Gate. The eastern gate is completely closed. And when you ask one of those people, why is the gate closed? Uh, if they're a Jewish person, they'll tell you we're waiting on the Messiah. They'll tell you that today. That gate doesn't open until the Messiah is here. And when the Messiah is here, we'll open the gate. Now, they're looking for the Messiah to come the first time. We're looking for him to come the second time. So what happens in that moment, his feet touch the Mount of Olives. The eyes of the world are watching this event. He moves across the Valley of Kidron up to the uh, gate the gate is open and he walks through the eastern gate to sit on the throne of David there on the temple mount. Listen to Revelation 19. I saw heaven open and behold a great white horse and he who sat on that horse was called faithful and true and he in righteousness he judges and makes war. I'll explain that in a minute. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His head, on his head were many crowns and he had a name of written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now put this together. He comes out of heaven, every eye sees him. He's riding a white horse. And guess what? Those of us who are raptured and we're in the presence of God, we're coming back with him, you ready? Riding a white horse. Could I give you some, uh, uh, give you some counsel? I'd say cowboy up, folks. <laughs> That's why I wear boots. <laughs> you better take you a little riding lesson, man, or you're gonna be side side on it and we're gonna make fun of you. No, the point is, you, you, everybody, we're all coming back. We're coming back with him. Can you imagine how incredible that's gonna be? We're coming back on these white horses. And the Bible says uh, his name is the word of God. The armies clothed in uh, fine linen come with him on white horses. And then out of his mouth, notice, goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. Now, let me tell you the significance of that. Remember I said the armies of the world are marshaled in the valley of Megiddo and they're ready to attack and annihilate Israel? When Jesus returns, out of his mouth will come this sharp sword, meaning the spoken word of God. In fact, what happens is he wins this battle without ever firing a shot. I don't know what he's gonna say. 
But whatever he says is so powerful that it absolutely annihilates every soldier in the valley that was ready to assault Israel. In a moment, they are completely annihilated. And the Bible says, as Jesus approaches the earth, he has on his robe, verse 16, he has on, his, uh, he has on himself, on his robe and on his thigh, a name that is written, now we see his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he comes visibly in the second coming. Here's the third one that I want you to hear. He comes victoriously, victoriously. Revelation 20, verse four, and they that lived and reigned with Christ at that point for a thousand years, meaning that we're gonna live on this earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennial, it's what a thousand means millennium. It's a millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So let's put this together. The church has been raptured. We're in the presence of God. What are we gonna do up there? I'm gonna talk about this next week. We're, we're not gonna be disembodied spirits floating on clouds strumming harps. I'll tell you that right now. How long would that even, how long could you do that? We're gonna be up there forever. I mean, really, wouldn't you get a little bored strumming a harp on a cloud? It's, it's not gonna be some Casper convention. Some people have heaven like we're a bunch of spooks. That's an old cartoon, by the way, kids. You'll have to Google that one. Us old guys get it. It, it was a Casper the Friendly Ghost. You know, they had this idea that heaven's gonna be that. No. Man, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he came out of the dead in a glorified body, appeared in the upper room out of nowhere. Can I tell you what these glorified bodies will be able to do? And I don't have time to just get into all this, but let me touch it a little bit. Meaning that we'll be able to travel in eternity. Are you ready for this? At the speed of thought. Does that blow your hat in the creek? Now, light is about the fastest thing we know. Light travels 186,000 miles a second. Um, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. But the glorified body is a body that can travel at the speed of thought. Jesus moved from heaven to earth into the upper room in an instant at the speed of thought. You can be sitting there in your glorified body in the great millennium and say, I think I'm gonna go to Maui. Whoop, boom, Maui. You say, I think I'm gonna go to Estes Park for a little, Estes Park. I mean, you're gonna be moving at the speed of thought. You're not a disembodied spirit. You're in a glorified body. That body that was back to the earth will then be resurrected, recreated, reunited with the spirit and soul if you've died before this event. If not, you've been resurrected in the body you had on the earth. It's just glorified. And when Jesus told Thomas to touch him in the upper room, listen to what he said. He said, Thomas, a spirit, I'm not a spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. What are our glorified bodies like? They're like flesh and bone. I'll give you an example of what it's like. We'll have memory in heaven. Now the Bible says we're not marrying or giving in marriage, so you're not gonna be married in heaven, but you'll have memories of your marriage on the earth. For some of you, the good ones. <laughs> but you'll get that on the way home. But the point is, the point is you're not gonna have to deal with that X up there and go, ah, you know, there they are. It's, it's not gonna be that. You'll have, you'll have memories of, of, of good times that you made with people. It's not like I told you last week, it's not kind of men in black thing goes, and all of a sudden you're all your mind just blank. You're gonna have memories. You're gonna have the good memories. You're gonna be in heaven. When you read Luke 16 and the poor man goes to heaven, the rich man in hell, they see each other and they have memories. Uh, you remember that? They exchanged, they, they remembered their lives here on the earth. So what's my point? My point is these glorified bodies that we're gonna be living in in eternity with Jesus can move at the speed of thought. 
we're, we're gonna be living here on the earth. The Bible promised a new heaven and a new earth. Some people believe that means an annihilation of the earth and a recreation, but I don't believe it, I don't think it means that. I think it means a purging of the old earth, meaning everything that was wrong with the world will be made right and it will be set back in the original design as he designed it in the Garden of Eden. No thorns, no stickers, no poisonous anything. Have you noticed at your house your grass is dying and your weeds are doing great? Is that something wrong with that? You go in your flower beds and those expensive plants are withering, but boy, those weeds doing good. Man, and on this glorified earth, all of that's gonna be dealt with a new heaven and a new earth. And for a thousand years, the Bible says, we'll rule and reign and then moving into eternity, we're still gonna have this world to fully enjoy as well as heaven. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But let me kind of wrap this up by talking about what's going to happen when Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives, he moves across Kidron through the Eastern Gate and establishes his throne there on the throne of David. Can you imagine all the satellite trucks that'll be there and the world that'll be watching that event? I mean, people from everywhere are watching. I've never seen anything like that before. I can imagine one of the apostles has gathered the media together. They have this big gaggle of all these media people from all over the world and says, in a little while, Jesus will be here and he'll answer any questions. Well, I got a few. So all the media of the world is gathered in that throne room and all of a sudden those doors open. And let me tell you something. Those media people have interviewed kings and, and priests and they've seen you know, royalty and wealth, but they've never seen Jesus. And Jesus walks into that room majestically as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He sits on the throne of David and he says, I'll have your first question. And my view is those guys will sit there in stunned silence because there's not one creature on this world who could dare question the Creator. And after a few moments of stunned silence, I think Jesus will look at him and says, well, since you have no questions for me, I'm gonna outline my program for the next thousand years. And he begins by saying, there's gonna be peace in every valley. We're not gonna study war anymore. There's not gonna be hospitals because we're not gonna need them. I'm the healer in the land. Nobody's gonna get sick. Nobody's gonna die. We don't need surgeries and treatments anymore. There aren't gonna be kids with cancer. There's not gonna be any of that happening. Not gonna be need for a funeral home. None of that's gonna happen anymore. For a thousand years on this earth, I'll reign and I'll rule. I found this beautiful prophecy of this day. Isaiah 65, he said, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. He said, the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard from her. Can you imagine being in a place where the voice of weeping is not heard? nor the voice of crying. Listen, no more shall an infant from there on live but just a few days. He's prophesying about a time that's going to happen. I went out to the funeral, the cemetery yesterday. Tomorrow is Cindy's birthday. So I went out there as I do and put some fresh flowers. I know she's not there, but I honor her memory when I go. And I go over to our little Evie, my granddaughter, I go over and I put some flowers out on, out on her grave too. And while I was there putting those flowers, arranging the flowers, I saw this young mom just right over a little ways from me, just me and her, the only two in that area of the cemetery. She was in a new section where the, they have new graves there. 
and she was arranging some flowers and then she literally laid down over that grave and just wept. Man, my heart broke for her. I didn't know her story, but I knew enough to know it hadn't been long since she lost her little one. And I almost thought, well, I ought to go over and say something. And I thought, well, I'm looking like a creeper if I walk over there and can't do that, you know. And yet I, I just, and then I thought, you know, that's a sacred moment she's having in that space. And I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt that moment she's having there. I just thought, I hope she knows that little one's in the presence of Jesus. And one day she's going to see that baby again. And then I made my way over to Cindy's and I arranged the flowers there. And it's always hard. It's always hard. You guys know what that's like. Many of you do. You've got little ones there. You've got mom, dad there. Some of you have a spouse there. It's never easy. But the hope I always take when I leave there is I'm going to see them again. I have hope. This doesn't end at all. One day as a little boy, I walked, as it were, to the cross, and I said, Lord Jesus, I don't know much about anything, but I know you died on the cross for me, and I want you to save me. And as a little boy, he did. And from that moment in time, I've tried my best to tell other people about Jesus. And one of the greatest hopes that I keep in my heart right now is the hope one day I'm going to see my Savior, and one day I'm going to see those who have gone before. That's a great hope. I'll be honest, I don't know how people live without that kind of hope. And I'm telling you, friend, this is, this is, <laughs> this is as bad as it's going to get for us. When Paul talk, talked about life, he said our, our, our light affliction is just for a moment. It's momentarily. You say, boy, I've been going through stuff for a long time. Paul said, in, in light of eternity, this is short. I, I've told you before, this is all the hell you're going to go through. You're going through it right now because you're going to a better place. We're going to a place called heaven. And man, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I highly recommend him. And I sure want to see you when we get there one day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise and the hope and the encouragement that it gives us. Thank you that even in judgment, you remember mercy that you weren't willing for anyone to ever have to face the wrath of God. So Father, I pray none of my friends in this room or those watching online or those that may listen to a podcast later, I pray none of them will ever reject you. But instead, in this moment, they will receive you to be protected from the wrath that is to come. I pray right where they are, they'll pray a simple prayer like this and just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart forgive my sin. With everything I know about me, I now trust everything I know about you. And Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for making me one of your children. Thank you for giving me hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.